coronavirus, contact tracing and privacy, fraudsters focusing on federal stimulus payments, and what Ronald Reagan has to do with zero trust. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. There's a number of words and phrases that have become a part of our common vernacular in the last few months. Obviously, there's coronavirus and COVID-19. There's also social distancing and flatten the curve. And then there's another that we're beginning to hear a great deal, which is contact tracing. It's not difficult to translate what that means. It's literally tracing the contact or contacts that an infected individual may have had in recent weeks. It sounds simple, but it's actually very hard to do. Where did I go? Who did I converse with? What did I touch? Human memory is really not up to the job of tracking our contacts with that degree of granularity. And there are technologies that may present a far better record, such as our smartphones. However, having our whereabouts tracked opens a fairly hefty can of worms relating to privacy. With more on the story, it's ISMD's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Can contact tracing apps help us keep COVID-19 infections to a minimum? As the pandemic continues, many nations have introduced or announced plans to introduce smartphone-based contact tracing apps. Such programs may have a public health upside, but more than 200 scientists and researchers this week warns in an open letter that such apps come with risks. Namely, they could facilitate unprecedented surveillance of society at large unless they get rolled out with security and privacy safeguards. Everybody accepts that extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures, but that has to be done in a measured way. And you have to have this debate, you have to have this public debate about the risk. That cybersecurity expert, Alan Woodward. He's a visiting professor at the University of Surrey, and he's one of hundreds of signatories to the open letter. Contact tracing apps are meant to augment the laborious manual process of tracking individuals who have tested positive for COVID-19 and then attempting to notify everyone with whom they may have come into contact after infection via telephone. Researchers have said that due to COVID-19 symptoms sometimes not coming to light for days or weeks, manual contact tracing won't be good enough. Instead, they're looking to technology to help. One model for how this would work involves users running an app on their smartphone that will send a unique anonymous ID to any other app within a certain proximity, such as about six feet, for a specified period of time. If a user later tests positive for COVID-19, they can toggle an alert in their app, which will share their unique ID via the cloud and alert all other apps that record having come into contact with that ID. But there are numerous debates over the best way to do this. The big, I mean, and it really is a big point at the moment, is um, centralized versus decentralized. So, for example, should I be doing that risk modeling by capturing all the data on some central server somewhere? Um, or should I be have some kind of anonymous exchange of tokens with people and allow it to be done on the phone? The risk being, and this is what led to the letter, the risk being that if you try and capture a lot of that data, whilst we all understand that extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures, it could actually be misused. It could be used for what's called social graphing. So you can start to track people's movements for all sorts of other purposes. Uh, so bearing in mind that the road to hell is often paved with good intentions, we, we just wanted to put a few markers down, um, one of which was these decentralized 
approaches are preferred. It has to put privacy as a high factor in this. But also, that we've said a point three of our letter was, if it really is necessary to collect some of this data and process it centrally, then it has to abide by the data protection guidelines that are already out there, which is you collect only the minimum you need and you justify it to the public. And there's some sort of sunset clause. So eventually it will evaporate and it can't be misused for other things in the future. These are not academic concerns. Researchers at the University of Oxford estimate that 60% of a country's population will need to use these apps for them to be effective. But only 80% of the population, at least in the United Kingdom, have smartphones sufficiently advanced to run these apps. In other words, Governments must get immediate buy-in from a vast majority of the population when they launch these apps. Arguably, they'll only get one chance to do so, mess up the rollout, and what could be a saving grace instead becomes a liability. This is precisely what the scientists are warning in their open letter when they emphasize that contact tracing app projects must prioritize openness, transparency, privacy by design, allowing users to opt in, and taking as decentralized an approach as possible. This is not a bunch of swivel-eyed loons who are, who are sort of all anti-government and saying, we don't believe this is, this is the right thing to do because you're all going to spy on us. We're saying that is a possibility. So we just need, and we know how we can build these things. But at the same time, we're all willing to be convinced that there may be good clinical reasons why you may need some things done centrally, but justify that, show us that. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to impact daily lives and the ability for people to work, Governments around the globe are injecting stimulus payments into their citizens' bank accounts with the hope of keeping consumers and therefore their economies afloat. Unsurprisingly, criminals have also noticed the dispersal of hundreds of billions of dollars, presenting a golden opportunity for fraud. With news of what the IRS is doing to block and tackle this threat, here's ISMG's managing editor, Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk. The U.S. Treasury Department is anticipating fraud as the IRS works through the largest cash distribution to American residents in history as part of a trillion-dollar pandemic relief program. It's also an unprecedented opportunity for cybercriminals, two services the IRS has quickly stood up for people to submit their direct deposit banking details are accessible online. One of the services is for non-filers or for people below the income threshold required for filing a tax return. That means the IRS does not have their bank account details. Another online service, Get My Payment, is designed for people to submit their direct deposit details. The IRS is also mailing paper checks. To authenticate taxpayers, both services rely on the usual personal data, names, mailing addresses, birth dates, and social security numbers. That has become ever riskier to rely upon in an age of unending data breaches where much of that data has been floating around online on the internet for years. Alex Holden is founder and chief information security officer for Wisconsin-based Hold Security, which is a cybersecurity consultancy. 
He says that a scan of Russian language cybercriminal forums and private chats suggests that fraudsters are moving quickly. They're hoping to capitalize on gaps in fraud controls. Alex Holden. They are basically understanding that uh, the systems are uh, IRS and other places very much new and uh, not 100% fraud proof. They're just forging ahead and trying these things. In a chat, one group appeared to have successfully submitted bank account data for an unsuspecting taxpayer entitled to the stimulus. Other chats indicated fraudsters were also seeking compromised computers running Microsoft's remote desktop protocol. That's in order to access the IRS's website using US IP addresses so as to not raise suspicions. The Treasury Department is sought to warn people about the potential for fraud. It says it won't ask people for personal information by email, text message, or social media. The U.S. Department of Justice has also set up the Virginia Coronavirus Task Force to investigate financial scams around the payments. There are some hurdles for fraudsters to overcome when trying to steal someone else's payment. For example, if the IRS already has bank account details on file, someone can't just use Get My Payment to change their details. Also, that online service asks for a person's adjusted gross income from previous tax years or may ask for refund or debt amounts from either of those years. While a fraudster may not know that information, it may just be a matter of tricking a victim into divulging that information through phishing or social engineering. There's been a record rise in domains centered around the pandemic and the economic relief programs, as well as thousands of new dodgy domain names registered. The speed at which the payments are being distributed may mean catching fraud only in hindsight. The IRS has said it will send letters within a couple of weeks to recipients confirming payments that have already gone out. I spoke with Michael Brett Hood, who's a former FBI supervisory special agent and an adjunct professor of corporate governance and ethics at the University of Virginia. He says it's not uncommon for the IRS to push out money, then worry about fraud after the fact. That makes it more inviting for cyber criminals. But he says Americans are also in tough financial circumstances right now and need help. Holden agrees. He says the IRS doesn't want to make the mistake of excluding anyone. Alex Holden again. I, I don't know what IRS can be doing uh, more securely. Uh, perhaps, you know, putting more uh, two-factor authentication, having some kind of, uh, you know, more complexity, like a phone number or anything like that. But implementing this in a short uh, time, not complicating and not excluding certain individuals is tough. So. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. With the recent transition to a remote workforce for a great number of companies, implementation of a zero-trust framework has very much come of age. So much so, in fact, that ISMG held its first ever virtual cybersecurity summit on the subject of zero-trust this week. One of the notable speakers was the godfather of zero-trust, John Kindervag, field CTO at Palo Alto Networks. That's his current title, but 10 years ago, as a forester analyst, he coined the phrase Zero Trust for a research report, inspired, rather surprisingly, by Ronald Reagan. Here's the story in John's own words. So I had joined Forrester Research uh, in 2008 after uh, a lot of time in the uh, cybersecurity reseller community as, a, as an engineer. So I'd been a, a network engineer, a security engineer, pen tester, security architect, those technical jobs. And because of my technical background, I was asked, to do research, primary research on why cybersecurity wasn't working and what we could do about it. And through that research, talking to lots and lots of different people, 
the thing that kind of came back to me was the idea of this trust model that we had built up inside of networks. The idea that the evil internet was the untrusted side of the network or, or, and the internal network was all trusted. And from installing firewalls over a number of years, I had struggled with this trust model uh, developing policy, so I was familiar with it. But, you know, oddly enough, there was a moment in New York City uh, when I was speaking to the CISO of a very, very large company, and I asked him, what, uh, you know, what's your cybersecurity strategy? And he said to me, oh, of course, trust but verify. And I said, why is that? And he said, because Ronald Reagan said, said we should do that. And, uh, and that led me to actually going back and seeing what Ronald Reagan actually said. And he didn't say trust but verify. He, he was quoting an old Russian proverb in his speech in 1987 or 88, maybe, with Mikhail Gorbachev. And he said, Mr. Gorbachev, and I'm wildly paraphrasing here, um, uh, you know, we're excited about this treaty but we're gonna abide by that old Russian proverb, and I'm gonna butcher the Russian pronunciation, but, but he said, uh, we're gonna abide by that old Russian proverb, dovrenai no provrenai, which of course means trust but verify, and then everybody laughed. So Ronald Reagan was making a joke, right? And no one in cybersecurity or no one in the Western Hemisphere got the joke. And that's, that was the moment when I did the research, when I, when I researched what Ronald Reagan actually said, um, I'm so thankful to that CISO in New York City for, for pointing me in that direction. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time. <laughs>